G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, hope you're well. This is the Footyology Audio Podcast preview of the semi-finals edition. How are you, Finding? Oh, I'm very well. Beautiful weather in Melbourne today, yesterday. Short sleeves, summer is upon us. It's the, uh, spring in the air, you can smell the cut grass. Uh, Cric- can- cricketers are getting... Cricketers are getting... Itchy feet. Can you hear cicadas yet, or is it too early for that? I always think you can when we're on air. I, I always think this time of the footy season, I'm always reminded of this Sandy Roberts commentary line from a, uh, I think it was a, a first game of the season out at Windy Hill, and Sandy does the theatrical thing, and the ball goes out of bounds, and he goes in conditions that are very, very similar to springtime. Yeah, that's nice. It is. Do you like? It's interesting that football, that is traditionally a winter sport, played no longer on wet, muddy grounds, has its main game, the grand final. You know, sometimes, remember 1987, was it? Sometimes... 33 degrees. 2001 was a very hot grand final. And it's different to the way football's played during the season. I find that not too confronting, but I'm amazed that baseball, that is America's national sport and national pastime, they call it, often the World Series is played, especially depending on the two teams, sometimes it's played in freezing well, conditions. Well, that's, that's got later and later. I remember when I was a kid, it was sort of early October, the World Series. So. Yeah, it's, it's known as the Fall Classic, but if, if Minnesota make the World Series, they play it in like triple, triple clad clothing. It's odd. All right, well, we're here to talk footy, uh, but actually that is a convenient uh, segue because um, you wanted to bring up in our news segment what uh, Eddie Maguire was saying about the final scheduling. Yeah, he's again protective of the breaks in between games and I guess part of the problem with uh, Eddie's position is that it sort of suggest well it doesn't suggest but it, it, it's dependent on Collingwood defeating GWS and that's putting the cart before the horse isn't it I imagine Nathan Buckley and all the Collingwood players would if they had their druthers would rather their president didn't enter into what may happen if Collingwood win okay well I've got to say, I don't see what the problem is here. So they played on Saturday night in Perth. Yep. They're playing this week on Saturday night in Melbourne. Yes. And if they win that, they'll be playing the following Friday night against a team that finished on top of the ladder and will have uh, one extra day's break. So what? I mean, they they are saying, or Eddie is saying, that because you can't get back from Perth after a Saturday night game, yeah, you don't get back till late Sunday. Yeah. Rehab is really starts on Monday. It's it's a basically a six day break. Yeah, well, you know, okay. And that there was no need for it because I mean everybody did expect the first final to be 
Collingwood and West Coast on the on Thursday. Thursday night. It, it was quite a shock when it wasn't. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I reckon this whole break thing is rubbish. Um, I mean, sides regularly have six day breaks during the season, and I do my fixture analysis every year, and one of the categories in it is not six day breaks, it's consecutive six day breaks. That is the thing that the clubs really panic about. And sometimes some clubs, I think there are a couple this year, they played three games in a row off six-day breaks. Now, that takes a toll. But one day in a final series when you're at the height of your physical preparation, I think it's much ado about nothing, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I've never really cared, bought in too much to the break length of break discussion because there's no hard and fast evidence to suggest that teams are advantaged or disadvantaged, particularly. It's not that stark. And you know what? Given we now have the pre-finals by, there's another reason it should make less difference. Plus, uh, to the integrity argument, I think it, now that we haven't got that advantage for the top four, they should be entitled, the higher you finish on the ladder, the more entitled you should be to any conceivable advantage whatsoever, which Richmond have earned. Just how about the sort of added perspective of... Having a president, a club president that has microphone access and is obviously such a public figure and a media figure such as Eddie Maguire, that the thoughts of Eddie become sort of um, national, a discussion point because AFL football, we're looking for headlines and there aren't too many coming out of the first week of the finals, to be honest. So does Eddie need to, this is more media watch, does he really need to temper his comments on ongoing football issues well, in a presidential sense. When given he's hosting Fox footy on a Friday night. Or, or, uh, <clears throat> or hosting M. Millionaire or on Triple M's Hot Breakfast. or How to get it out on Millionaire. It's a pre-recorded It's a pre-recorded. Oh, I'm sure it's Ed would find a way. <laughs> <laughs> sure. oh, yeah, well, yeah. There, there are too few voices, I think, giving opinions on footy. That is a, a media watch matter. But seriously, I, I think... The folk, any focus on this is probably just a consequence of not enough to talk about. It's sort of funny at the uh, most important time of the year that there's not enough to talk about, really, isn't it? But Nathan Buckley's response was good. I've got to say that because he was asked, you know, would you give? Did you give Eddie a call? Did you ask him to maybe tone it down? He said, no, not at all. He said, I tried that twenty years ago or so. You know, I tried that once when I started playing. And it didn't work, and I'm not going to try it now. I'm not going to walk down that path again. Eddie will say what Eddie wants to say. Well, there is news, and there's news for clubs that uh, are out of the hunt, and that goes to delistings. And, um, oh, not just delistings, but speculation about trades, whatever. It's already started in earnest. So um, what are some of the ones we've had this week? Well, Essendon delisted Josh Green the other day. Uh, your Saints have... Well, this is over the past couple of weeks, isn't it? But Nathan Freeman, Hugh Goddard, and then Sam Gilbert. Darren Minchington yesterday. Oh, yeah. Was that yesterday? I thought that or was... the day before, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, a seven already at St Kilda. I thought, that, well, probably in the last couple of days, uh, the ones we should focus on seeing, they've just finished their finals campaigns, uh, Sydney and Geelong. So Geelong have cut Stuart Cramery, who just had the one year, and Aaron Black, who had two, and both... Injury was the backdrop for both of them. I think Black was probably a little bit unfortunate. He came into that side and 
was going all right and then injured himself. I can't remember that game. It was down at Geelong, but but it's interesting because at, at North Melbourne there was a moment in time where Aaron Aaron Black, you know, was the new Black. He really looked like uh, the perfect long kicking goal threat from a half forward flank. Beautiful size, beautiful mover, mm. and then in sort of a, a spectacular fall from grace. Just couldn't get possessions at North, lost his spot in the team and ended up at Geelong, but as a rookie and it just never, it, it never ever did he recapture that form. No, no. In, in fact, you mentioned North. I think of all the names so far, the one that I think was unluckiest and the biggest surprise was uh, Billy Hartung at North because I thought he got, really gave him something when he came into that side this year and he got injured. He was playing good footy when he got injured. And um, we did talk about this a few weeks ago. You suspect that that is clearing the decks for the likes of a Jared Pollock or an Andrew Gaff or someone of that nature. Billy Hartung has never been able to, I guess, shake the tag, the reputation of being a poor user of the ball, of, of kicking floaters, of not being a penetrating kick and... I guess at North Melbourne, he was not able to turn his possession, his quality possession, or lift his rate of quality possessions. And it's so important in football, isn't it? Turnovers, mm. uh, they are they are football poison. So I don't know the figures, but I know that the main reason Billy Hartung's not on an AFL list at the moment is not how he gets it, not what he, the speed he has, but what he does with it when he drops it onto that leather that we call a boot. Well, let's talk about the Swans and the Cats, both disappointing finish to the season. Um, I guess the biggest news is Dan Hannabury asking for a trade from the Swans, and your Saints are interested in him. Uh, well, he's nominated St Kilda. Yeah. He, the he stated that. The Cats uh, look like they're after Luke Dalhouse and Gary Rowan, so another Swan looking like he might leave there. He's, uh, he's asked to leave. Um, interest, almost contrasting strategy. So the Swans will lose Hanabry and Rowan, and we don't know, <clears throat> pardon me, we don't know where they're going yet, but you suspect they might sort of focus on youth. The Cats, um, geez, they've been topping up for a while, and here they are going after Dalhouse and Rowan. Now, they also expressed interest, though, with two years to run on a contract, uh, received a not interested from St Kilda's best player Jack Stephen. Yeah, well, it's gee, it's interesting. The Cats. I, I wonder if I don't know. Do they think they're in a better position than most of the rest of the footy world? Uh, we've talked, you know, we've talked about them a bit during the year. I don't think either of us were ever convinced by them at any stage. I thought that uh, they were very competitive, but their best only went so far, and I always thought they were steps short of the best teams in the comp. I think uh, one of the issues I think there is the influx of senior players because whilst they have some good emerging young talent, and who we're we talking about there, uh, Jack Henry, um, uh, Quinton Arkell. Tom Stewart, that, Tom Stewart, obviously. Oh, yeah, he's been there a while now and he's an All-Australian. But some... Radigalia. Radigalia. Um, uh, Fogarty showed a few signs. But they're young players that have come into that team, and they have debuted 15 players over the last two seasons, which is as much as Fremantle. Um, but it's still peripheral. None of them have come in and sort of really 
become an immediately, not immediately, but a, in short time, a pivotal part of the way they play their footy. And you can't help but wonder, is that because they are denied enough responsibility because you've got Dangerfield, Selwood, Ablett, and or, uh, plus that in the midfield, Kelly, Duncan, and Menegola. Of course. Look, th- there's a clear hierarchy in that team, and there are players that are forced into peripheral roles. There's only so many times you can get the ball, and Selwood, Dangerfield, and Ablett get it, I think, on average around 90 times between them during a game. Mitch Duncan crafts a very strong football presence by working around that. Menegola comes in and out of games sort of on a week-to-week basis. You're not sure exactly how much influence he has. It really is dependent on the role he's given. But beyond that, it's and, and Kelly has done particularly well to work into that midfield. Where are the you just can't get the ball that often. And the perfect example is Josh Caddy. Now Josh Caddy's a wonderful premiership player. Unlucky not to be all Australian this year, I reckon. Yeah. And at Geelong, the only time he ever flourished was when Selwood and Dangerfield wasn't there. In fact the one week they didn't both play, he was best on ground for Geelong. So you know, there are. I, I, I sort of get the interest in Gary Rowan. We said on our um, Footyology TV on Sunday night, I think I made this observation. I, I think they still could use another David Wojcinski type, some dash off halfback. I think, you know, they're not necessarily quick and explosive coming out of halfback. So, very fragile body. Yeah, he is. But, you know, he's one of those guys you look at and you think that the talent's always been sort of untapped. Funnily enough, and this happens a bit, doesn't it? One of the best games I remember him playing was in one of Sydney's wins down at Geelong. Back, this is going back about 2011, I think. Um, he played a terrific game. So whether that sticks in people's minds, I, I don't know. But Would you play him down back or forward? He's also... As a forward, he's so quick off the mark yeah. and, and has the ability to run down opponents. Look, when he's fit, he's great up either end. I'd, I'd be tempted to play him as a running back. I think, you know, in the Saad, Connor McKenna yep. type mould, I reckon he's perfectly suited to that. So, you know, the Cats, it's, a, it's an interesting strategy and, uh, you know, I mean... Look, they've been in two consecutive preliminary finals, so I understand why they've continued to top up. I would have thought now is the time you reassess and you really try and push through the young talent that is already there. I've got to say that preliminary finals can be a mile away. North Melbourne played in a preliminary final or two, but were miles off it and have and have rejigged it a bit and re and build from that. The Bulldogs actually, you know, in the 2010, 2009, or 11 period, made a couple of preliminary finals. Well, they made three in a row, eight, right. eight, nine, and ten. But that, that, again, they were a long way off winning a premiership, weren't they? Um, you had that feeling everything would have to go right for them. That Having said that, they only lost in 09 to St yeah, Kilda in the preliminary by Raywald, seven points. Raywald's kick from the goal square let's, off the ground. Let's talk about the Swans, because I think they're yawning... Uh, gap. Just, just very quickly on Geelong, are they committed to this route as long as those three players are there, Ablett, Selwood and Dangerfield? Does that sort of commit them to keep on topping up? I don't see why. I mean, can't they be the cream on the cake? I mean... I, I agree. Do you know Geelong, as recently as maybe five years ago or six years ago, 
certainly they were the last team ever not to have a player, and it's within the last five or six years, their list didn't have a single player from another club on it. Yeah, yeah. No, they're completely... I mean, they had that group of players drafted in between 99 and 01 that, that formed the nucleus of those flag sides. So, yeah, no, completely changed tack. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. There's a common denominator with both of them because they're both, and the Swans I'm talking about, because there's two sides that have stayed very competitive and regenerated at the same time. Last weekend sort of wasn't a great vote for that strategy, really, because, and I think, Let's talk about the Swans quickly. I I feel the same way with them. I feel like, um, and harder for them because I think their senior players really have carried the day. But, you know, Kennedy, Parker, Franklin up forward, but particularly that midfield group. I looked at the younger guys in the Swans side this year, like Florent and Haywood, and they weren't necessarily getting more opportunity because of the performance of the established senior core. And one thing... You know, Hanabry, as well as um, saving them a reported eight hundred grand a year, uh, and they talk about them targeting Darcy Moore, which I think makes sense because Franklin needs support uh, from another key forward. But the loss of Hanabry will give the likes of Haywood or Florent a chance to really assume more responsibility, and I think they need that. They need a bit more dash too, and. Um, you know, I'm not sure. There, there was something a bit sort of banged up and lacking in inspiration about them all year, I thought. Banged up's a great term. Look, Callum Mills was immediately, Big loss, immediately yeah. missed. Yeah. Isaac Heaney actually needs to raise, even though he played some great games and, and they would point to his, even in the finals, his effort as, you know, being some sort of a bright light. But he needs to probably assume a greater role in terms of ball winning by taking more time in the midfield. Mm. It looks like forced upon them, but not forced upon them. They will uh, choose what to do with Hanbury, but I think he'll be moving to St Kilda. They will have to make decisions. Interestingly, Kieran Jack resurrected his career somewhat. Mm. One would have thought maybe last this year was going to be his last year. Jared McVeigh. Uh, these are players that you know, Father Time calls Heath Grundy. Mm. Where's his future? Uh, we saw that Buddy Franklin having to carry the load because Sam Reed was injured all year, got banged up himself. So that's a big one. I mean, surely their number one priority has to be support for Buddy. Um, Are they not gun-shy at recruiting injured players? Tippett was a disaster. Yeah. Darcy Moore already has a, 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 a litany of hamstring injuries that... Yeah would make me gun-shy. One, one thing that will help is, uh, see, the loss of Naismith pre-season was huge for them because it meant that Callum Sinclair basically had to go it alone. And yeah. he's a guy, of all those sort of ruckmen who double as oh, he key forwards, he's point. up there with the best, I think. So that will help as well. But I would have thought, yeah, it's a reasonable point about Darcy Moore, but I would have thought he's a reasonable target for them. So... In a nutshell, because we've got to move on, yeah. do we think the Cats or the Swans can stay around the mark? And is that good enough? Do, do you see enough with either of them that make, makes you think, um, you know, these are sides that with a, a bit more tweaking could still aspire to a flag? No. If Richmond are going to get Tom Lynch, then all the teams in the eight are probably behind the eight ball already. 
you know my opinion on Geelong, that their ladder position is artificially pumped up by the fact that they have those eight games at Skilled Stadium. No, it's now GHBA or whatever. Yeah. But that's not their fault, but they need to understand that when it comes time to move back to the MCG, they've been sorely wanting. So what other tack can they... What other route can they go down? Interestingly, Cam Mooney yesterday on Macquarie Sports said there's nothing wrong with missing, missing the finals for two or three years and just taking your turn in the in the national draft, which they have foregone a bit. Dangerfield cost them picks. All of these players will cost picks. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So the other route is just respect the draft a bit more. Well, you said what's the other tack they can take? The tack cup. Correct. Uh, okay. I, and just one observation on all of this yep. is why do clubs think that the best way to treat chronic injury is to put a different jumper on somebody? Does St Kilda <laughs> believe with Hanabry? Does Sydney believe with Darcy Moore? Does Geelong believe with Gary Rowan that pre-existing injuries fade with a different colour scheme? Well, they have more faith in their medical staff to rehabilitate, and I'll give you one name on that, Sean Burgoyne. But it's funny, they believe their medical staff's yeah, better, yeah. but Geelong take a swan. Uh, St Kilda take a swan. Geelong take a swan. Sydney take a magpie. It becomes a, a, a cycle anyhow. Yeah, well, uh, like with the assistant coaches, half the medical people and the assistant coaches have are been on a merry-go-round everywhere. Anyway. Yeah. All right, let's move on. On Footyology Media Watch. All right, bit of a difference with this segment this week. Um, plenty to discuss in the world of sports media. Um, if you are looking for a perhaps tenuous football connection, um, Mark Knight is a name you've probably heard a bit about this week. Uh, Mark Knight, of course, does the uh, premiership posters for the AFL, taking over the long and proud tradition of Wegg, the old Herald cartoonist who used to do the grand final posters. So there is a footy connection, but um, fair to say, been a massive, massive story, not only here, but internationally. Um, in fact, I can't remember too many stories coming out of Australia getting as much international traction as this one has, and I speak, of course, of Mark Knight's controversial cartoon about Serena Williams and... Spitting the dummy and uh, accusations about racism, um, which the Herald Sun have reacted very harshly to and sort of doubled down on their stance. Uh, and it just, it gets bigger and bigger, Finey, and um, I'll, I'll let you have your say, because I, I know you've got a particular sort of view you want to bring to this, I'll just, so people are aware, um, we've all had a... Well, not all. I had my two bobs worth. I actually stayed out of this initially. I had a really nice day on um, uh, Tuesday and sort of, you know, stayed away from social media a bit. And then, I, But I was thinking about this whole issue. Um, you know, was Mark Knight's caricature of, uh, caricature of Serena racist? What was the intent? Blah, blah, blah. I started tweeting something and I just found I didn't have enough words. So I ended up writing a thing which sort of became 400 words, and I attached it on a screenshot. And, you know, sometimes you tweet something and it resonates, and other times it doesn't. Well, this one sort of took off. Um, and uh, I've, I've get you know, you, you get Google alerts 
uh, news alerts, and I've had about three in the last 24 hours. Actually, uh, woke up in the middle of the night last night, and there was an email there saying uh, Google alert, and I thought, oh, what's this one? And it was the Washington Post. So I found my tweet quoted in the Washington Post, the Guardian uh, what was the other one? I think the BBC. So I got a lot of traction for a few random thoughts on it, but uh, I know you want to have your say, so I'll let you kick us off. Okay. Well, you actually pointed out to me yesterday that we would be discussing this and that you had a response. At that point, it hadn't been picked up by international press. So first of all, well, well done on that. In as much, well done. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Well, well done on being on, on having a. That wa- wasn't the- point no no i'm saying but well done on on being widely read in social media and having some traction there it's it's testimony to your devotion to that particular form, <laughs> Probably, yeah. form of media Probably. it's finally paid off you're in the washington post if that's what you wanted which i guess well, i always wanted to be you know every kid who wants to be a journey dreams of being woodward and bernstein so that's as close as i'm going to get well there you go so I have no idea what your response is, and, and, and I still don't, and, and I'll get it in a moment. I decided you told me to go and check your 400-worder. I, th- I thought, no, I don't want it to colour my response to this, and I would rather discuss it live on air, or when I say live, uh, people will be listening to this shortly after we've actually had these thoughts. So I have no idea which way you've gone. And actually, knowing your previous stance on the Herald Sun and your political leaning being to the left, I think of one immediate response. But then I also know you as a journalist who zealously covets the freedom of speech or freedom of expression that um, would be the right of Mark Knight. So this is my response, not knowing which way you've gone. And that is that Mark Knight, um, I agree with Heather Rowling, you know, the uh, Harry Potter author. J.K. Rowling. I call her Harry. Um, I believe she's become half Potter. So, half potty. No, I, I agree with J.K. Rowling in part because she said, I don't believe that Mark Knight sat down with his 64 Crayolas, already sort of um, a little bit, um, uh, you know, sinister, starting off the way she's portrayed him as somebody with his little sketchy pencils. But... um and demeaning, but with hatred in his heart. That I want to make something very clear. I don't believe Mark Knight had any intent to draw or was not thinking, you know, here's a black woman. Is I, this you or J.K. Rowling? No, I, I'm this saying I don't, I don't believe, and okay. I agree with her opening stance, oh, right, yeah. that he didn't sit down with any racist, racist intents. Yeah. Um, he goes to, on to draw a caricature, and has an end product. And for him, it is all about her tantrum on, on court. And that's fine. But he does not live in a bubble. Mark Knight is a renowned cartoonist. And surely he understands the prehistory of drawings and the role it has played in the racist portrayal of certain of certain um, ethnic groups. Well, he claimed not to when he well, was interviewed. About well, that is extraordinary. Uh, you can't surely live in a bubble. I am not a cartoonist. I can't draw stick figures. But I know only too well the imagery of African-Americans, Negroes, or worse terms, in 
in the American South and 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 America pre the awakening of civil rights and and yeah modern political correctness but these images were used to negatively stereotype and portray African Americans in such a way that it would engender hatred now surely he understands that that is very similar imagery can he not look at his own drawing and say hey you know the message I'm making here is dangerously similar in imagery to some of the the most sinister pictures and and cartoons from you know from an era of of not just segregation but of lynching does he not know that does he not understand the role that imagery and caricatures played for example in the holocaust the famous front cover of der stürmer with an image of the you know covetous um Jew with the large hooked nose. These were these were branded on and branded on the on the minds of, of a people. And here is the point that constantly needs to be drilled in when people say, "Well, hang on, he draws this politician with a giant, long, thin nose, or that 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 um, famous foot figure or football figure with giant ears, or or." red hair blazing the next time that there are concentration camps filled with redheads or people are hung from trees or hanged from trees because of long thin noses and large ears i will listen to that argument but the fact is that african americans indigenous australians jews etc have seen the what resonates from these negative stereotypes and images in cartoons, in caricature. And they hark back to a deep-felt hatred that resulted in people being denied rights and much worse and, 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 you know, and racially cleansed on a, on a large basis because they're different, they're ugly, and his large lip and... And that portrayal of, of Serena with the large lips and the, and the picaninny hair, f- for want of a better term, harks back to a, a, a racial time of, of hatred and of, as I said, racial cleansing. And if he doesn't know that, if he is blind to that, well, then let's just say that Marx Knight is not racist. He's just an effing idiot. Honestly, he... Uh, I, I don't want to swear, you're an idiot, mate, Mark Knight, if you honestly, as a nationally nationally covered cartoonist and caricaturist, had no idea that that was the similar to racist imagery, you should be stripped of your Crayola. Yeah, no, strong words for me, very articulate. What is he, a moron? Well, your view, okay, what do you think my view is? I would say that you would be aghast at the fact that that image appeared in an Australian newspaper by our our leading caric- one of our caricaturists. Okay, well, it's disgusting. I'll be honest. I and this is basically what I wrote on Twitter that I, I tried to sort of. I, I must admit, my instinctive reaction when I saw that cartoon wasn't one of horror. It it didn't register with me, and this is where I think the cultural differences between various countries and 
cultures of races are, are really important. But this to me is the key. So the, my instinctive response wasn't one of horror. But when I saw the scale of the outrage from the US, I, there were a lot of interesting responses. And you mentioned J.K. Rowling, a lot of you know um, black celebrities in the US weighed in on it. Um, it was picked up by the US media. Uh, and I started reading a lot of that stuff. And they referenced the Jim Crow yeah. caricatures of a, a deeply racist era. And I started thinking about this. And I thought the key for me is, and I've, I've had... The reaction to what I tweeted has been, I'd say, 80% positive. Maybe I've muted or blocked too many people who'd take a contrary <laughs> view. But, the, you know, the people who took uh, the opposite stance were saying to me, either A, he wasn't trying to be racist, or B, it's not racist. And my response to that is, well, I get the intent, I, I get the, or the lack of intent, and I agree with that. I don't. I, I do agree. Believe Mark Knight when he says it, he thinks it wasn't about racism; it was about behaviour. But the thing about it's not racist that can't be a judgment applied by anyone other than the person who is part of that minority being targeted for parody. And and that is the key. It's not up to you or me or Mark Knight to decide if something's racist or not. It's up to the um, people representing the group that is being satirised. And when it comes to race and black people in particular, it is an incredibly sensitive uh, discussion. And you've got to be careful with it and you've got to be nuanced about it. So I started thinking about this. The other thing I would say, and this is more damning, and I did make this point, I have found a couple of nights, cartoons, or depictions of African people, Sudanese people in particular, I've found them bordering on racist at times. There was one cartoon he drew back in August when the Victorian government decided to end the feed of Sky News on train stations, and he conflated that with the African gang news angle that the Herald Sun has relentlessly pursued and he had um, the minister on the platform talking about getting rid of Sky News whilst African gangs were rioting on the escalators at the station. What was significant about that, and I've seen him do it with other cartoons, was the black people were all indistinguishable. They were all tall stick figures, barely with facial representation. That to me is pretty dangerous territory. So he, he's got, people would say he's got form on this. You, you pointed this out. Drawing someone as overly fat or exaggerating those sort of physical characteristics, it's not in the same ballpark because that doesn't carry with it the same weight of historical oppression as does the lot of black people. So I think that's, but the, I guess the main point I was making here was, I've actually been accused of racism, casual racism. And you learn about this stuff and standards change. Now, I had an incident on Twitter um, a couple of years back where I referred to the Pakistani cricket team and I used the abbreviation. Pakis. Correct. And I got absolutely jumped on. And I was honestly, I had no, I honestly had no idea that people found that offensive. And then a whole lot of people from the cricket world in England weighed in and they said, Mate, you cannot. Um, you, if you use that abbreviation in England, uh, you will be in awful, 
awful trouble. They, it, it's offensive. It carries negative connotations. As soon as I learnt that, I apologised, and I haven't done it since. Now, what is wrong with taking that tack? Think about how we've changed on race in this country, not quickly enough for mine, but the contraction of Aboriginal that we all grew up using. No one better terrible. than I would about yeah, yeah. it. Now considered terrible. Correct. And that's interesting, isn't it? When we were kids, you could use that phrase, no one better than I would. You hear, I hear that now. Well, yeah. I don't, fortunately. But if I do, I visibly cringe. So we've, we've moved on. There's the famous or infamous incident with Harry Connick Jr. on Hey Hey It's Saturday, which was 2009. And the thing about blackface. blackface yep. And people that had seen that couldn't understand it. And then Connick, coming from part of the US that was particularly sensitive to it, explained it, and people had a better idea of that. So, you know, our standards change, and we should be prepared to learn from this. So the cartoon was one thing. What, I'm, what I am... So basically, I understand where Knight was coming from. The difference is, and this is what I'm angry about, more than the initial cartoon. It's when that reaction came, the Herald Sun could have said, well, we didn't think we were being racist. We understand that there are cultural differences. We understand how that may have been interpreted, and we'll take that on board. Instead, in now typical News Corp fashion, they doubled down. And the front page the following morning, I thought, was a disgrace. It was PC world, and there were a whole lot of night caricatures, and it was sort of like saying, oh, no, we can't draw... Um, Kim Jong-il. Yeah, or Donald Trump or Daniel Andrews. Hello? And, and of course, they did the Serena one as part of that montage. What's the difference? Historical context. Historical context. 90% of the people on that page were... Uh, entitled, powerful, white politicians for whom parody isn't such a uh, a point of vulnerability. I mean, that's you're saying how, how smart do you have to be? Mark Knight's one thing. What about the Damon Johnson? He's the editor of the paper. What about the executives who clearly had a long discussion about how they were going to tackle this? Well, now it's a conscious decision to, to, okay. a, to appeal... To a certain, you know, to a certain voice that they believe is out there, and that's what—that's when I get really angry because, you know, I know, I know Damon Johnson; he's a smart guy. They are smart enough to get this now. Um, they have, yeah, they're playing to their gallery, and increasingly that gallery has become bitter, angry, um, fearful, old, entitled. White people, and you, you know, have a have a read of their letters page, or have a read of read of comments under their stories online. Well, at some point, media organisations as well as governments have to show leadership. Who is showing leadership in this country at the moment? We've got a federal government that is is swapping deck chairs on the bloody Titanic. Media organisations, they're just playing to the lowest common denominator and happily dog whistling. In the case of News Corp. You know, who's going to take an actual point of moral leadership in this country at the moment? It really disgusts me finding, and that's why, you know, that's why I end up sort of having these rants and, and these things on Twitter, because people should be setting the example. And these, I remember a time my newspaper career began 
at a time when newspapers could show leadership and often did on social campaigns like seatbelts and drink driving and even cleaning up the Yarra and pollution and stuff like that. News organisations were moral leaders in this country and now it's just playing to the peanut gallery and that makes me sick. And the Herald Sun could have been a lot more mature and just gone, we understand we've upset a lot of people, we don't necessarily agree, but we're going to show a bit of decency and respect. So no, what do they do? They double down and sort of like, you know, blow the dog whistle to their increasingly sort of isolated group of angry, bitter old white people and make themselves look like a pack of dicks. And that is the part that made me really angry. Yeah, well, your passion runs deep as does mine. When, first of all, everything you say resonates except one thing. You refer to this, their their peanut gallery as increasingly isolated. My fear is that it's not increasingly isolated. In fact, yesterday on Macquarie Sports, they have a segment with Mark Allen and David Schwartz in the afternoon, a sort of hero and zero where you call in and make a nomination. And people were nominating Mark Knight as their hero. And one of the callers said, I just want to say, I really like, you know, I agree Mark Knight has the right to... And he goes, and I you know, I really loved his caricature of Serena Williams. Now, whatever your opinion, if if we're now polarising the public to either rail against it or love it, well, when does Mark Knight wake up to himself and escape the bubble that he's lived in where he's blissfully unaware of what such imagery means to the people that are subject to it, when does he wake up to himself? And when does Damon Johnson wake up to himself? Maybe they wake up to themselves when, as I believe is the case, the KKK turn it into a T-shirt. So is that when... Is that going to be their, moment, their their light bulb moment? Because apparently it has been taken up by the extreme far right in America, white supremacists, the Nazi Party and KKK, who have given a big thumbs up to freedom of speech in Australia and made Mark Knight their man of the hour. Really? And that, yeah. That's and that, embarrassing. And that, and that imagery has been given the U-Butte by the American extreme and, you know, radical far right. So does that wake you up, Mark? I just want to say one thing, because we've talked about this in terms of of what it means in a historical context. And I mentioned Der Sturmer, the German newspaper that was so predominant pre-war in Nazi Germany and so virulently right-wing and supportive of the National Socialist Party. Look, being Jewish... I am sensitive to these things, and I find myself only um, declaring my Jewishness when faced with blatant anti-Semitism or stereotyping, because I'm not religious, I don't have a religious bone in my body, and I identify as an Australian first, foremost, and last. But let me just say this, that that sort of imagery stays with people for a lifetime. And I'm always fascinated by the portrayal of, of the negative portrayal and imagery of a Jew. That, that, that um, hunchbacked, um, hook-nosed imagery. And it's actually then followed through in children's 
children's um, story books and fairy tales. And if you have a look at portrayals of witches and of, 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 of gob- goblins, etc., they all share that large hook-nosed mm. imagery. And why I find it fascinating, have a look at any imagery of um, Jesus. How is Jesus portrayed? In fil- to this very day, he's portrayed as a lean, European, a bearded, European individual. Jesus Christ existed. His relevance in religion is different for different religions, but he was a person. And I guarantee you, he looked more like the front cover of Der Sturmer than he did like the actor who portrayed him in, what's his name? The the Temptation of Christ. You know, the most beautiful looking man you've ever seen. So it's funny how imagery plays such a, a sears onto the psyche of people. From the Shroud of Turin to Hans Christian Andersen, it can really change how people think. No, no, really, really well said. Okay, we've got to move on. One more point on this one, and and this is I didn't touch on this: the free speech thing. Now, the uh, the News Corp shills the the columnists like Chris Kenny, Andrew Bolt, etc. They're always parroting the defence of free speech. You know, we're being censored. We're being censored. Ironically, given that most of them have mouthpieces across the print and electronic media. But here's an example of the hypocrisy of that argument. So again, with the Mark Knight cartoon came there, you know, you're trying to censor our free speech and our expression. That's for, that was in the Herald Sun. Um, here's a, a front page from the Daily Telegraph, also a News Corp paper, less than two weeks uh, preceding the Mark Knight cartoon. The headline is, front page, Religious Furor, the ABC of Bad Faith. Taxpayers fund auntie the ABC's lefty mob to ridicule new PM's Christianity. So they're outraged by a very gentle parody of Scott Morrison's Christian faith, which I saw, and it was pretty gentle parody, trust me. And uh, yet, on the other hand, railing about them, Mark Knight, being denied the... Op- so do you see a, see a bit of an issue there? Of course there's an issue, and it is all to do with in one part historical context, but we all have freedom of expression and the right to say, draw whatever we want, as long as it does not impinge on the right of others and enter into the world of of hate speech. And we know, surely we know when that line is crossed because of context. And it saddens me that Mark Knight could honestly turn around and look at that picture and not have some trepidation and say that this resonates and reminds him of when, you know, drawing cartoons was used for a far more sinister, far, in, in a far more sinister way. So it's, it's all about the harm and the harm it can cause, the harm it did cause and the harm it will cause. Yeah, no, well put. Final point I'll make on it is, I I referred to it earlier, who is going to show some bloody leadership in this country? Politicians aren't doing it, and the media certainly aren't doing it. On Footyology, previews with Punch. 
All right, four games last week, two big finals this week. Finey starts at the MCG Friday evening. Hawthorne taking on Melbourne. A, uh, what's that, rematch of the 1990 elimination final? Rematch of the 1988 grand final? Rematch of Gutnick and <laughs> Don Scott and all and the... Dicker. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope it's not a rematch of the 88 grand final because that was a stinker, 96 points. Uh, I don't think it will be. I, I think this will be tight. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? There's always a bit of a... Uh, scramble to get off the bandwagon of the qualifying final loser and get on the bandwagon of the elimination final winner. I get it in this case because I think Melbourne were really impressive. Don't think the Hawks were that impressive in their game. However, and I did quote these figures to you uh, on Sunday night, 36 um, semi-finals we've had since the revamping of the final eight system. 30 have been won by the qualifying final loser. And uh, until three years ago, it was 26, or four years ago, it was 26 out of 28. So, the, you know, historically, uh, Hawthorne is in a pretty good spot. But I think they've got some issues. And I had some stats to back that up. They uh, really struggled. They didn't struggle to win the ball against the Tigers, but they really struggled to do anything with it. They only had 37 inside 50. So that Richmond pressure really prevented them getting the ball near goal. Their inside 50 average for the season is 55, so it was a long way short of that. They also conceded 66 inside 50s. Now, they have been number one in the competition for fewest inside 50s conceded. Richmond were able to penetrate their defences. Melbourne are good at both these things. Melbourne are second um, for fewest inside 50s conceded and their first four numbers of inside 50s. So... It's going to come down to that midfield battle, and that, for me, means there's a few Hawthorne players that really have to improve on last week. I thought the younger guys were found out a bit. I thought Warpole and Morrison struggled, and maybe a bit overcome by the occasion. Didn't think Burgoyne played that, that good a game. He, they need more from him. They need more from Warpole Morrison. They need more from Impey. Primarily, they need a big, big game from Ben McAvoy in the ruck. Okay, that that's really interesting. Do they play? They played Segler when they shouldn't yep. and copped a lot of criticism. They actually need to play him now because Max Gorn will he, he will tar and feather McAvoy. I'm sorry on what we saw. McAvoy couldn't keep up with Nan Curvis. Gorn will exploit him. Do they hold fire and keep Segler in? I think they have to because I, I think their forward line is looking a bit impotent as well and here's the but about this game too they smashed Melbourne in round four 67 points Melbourne's biggest defeat of a season now I had a look at the highlights of that game and read through the reports and um, they had two key forwards uh, in Ruffy uh, Jared Ruffhead and Tim O'Brien that day who kicked three each Luke Bruce kicked four so they got 10 goals out of those three forwards. Last week it was looking like roughy or bust, really. Mm. So I think that height for them and a dual-pronged attack on Max Scorn is really important. Another question for you. Uh, as I'm formulating in my mind my tip, I think I know who I expect to win. Can Wiedemann repeat the dose? He was central to that victory, and mm. as a young player... Yeah, I think most people would would think that he would struggle to go back to the well, to be honest. Especially yeah. Sicily with one game under the belt 
yeah. a likely opponent will be better for the run. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting one, isn't it? That sort of second second game up thing, whether that impacts on Wiedemann negatively or Sicily positively, but they need more out of Sicily. Did Wiedemann catch Geelong unawares? Possibly. I think he may have. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll tighten up on him, no doubt. Yeah. Look, it's I, I'm always, maybe it's the historical thing, I'm always loath to write Hawthorne off because I, I think they just have a habit of pulling out great performances when backs are to the wall. It's Incidentally, if they did lose, it'd be the second final series in a row where they'd gone out in straight sets, which is a very unhawthorne uh, like thing as well. But uh, I've agonised over this tip more, but um, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm falling for the trend again, but I'm, I can't help but go with the Demons simply on momentum. I thought they ticked all the boxes last week, and they were hard at it, Finey. They were very hard in that midfield. They've led contestable all year. I think the Hawks will give a much better account of themselves, but I, I reckon the Demons can do it. I'm tipping Melbourne as well because of their finals-like pressure that they applied to Geelong. In a way, the team with the ball it almost um, deserves the pressure that they get in as much that quick ball movement, decisive ball movement, quick feet and options make it hard for the opposition to lay tackles and apply pressure and things will open up in a final after quarter time, half time. That's how Richmond operate. Geelong didn't do that because they don't have those quick feet or option, to be honest. Ablett and Selwood almost demanded the tackle because that's where they are in their career. And I fear Hawthorne's lack of options in the middle similarly will draw a crowd and will get the sort of pressure that will make it impossible for them to move the ball easily. And you know what? If everything else chops out, as I said about Richmond last year in the finals, if 21 Richmond players break even, they'll win, because Dustin Martin will be better than the 22nd. If everybody chops out, Max Gorn will dominate Ben McAvoy and Segler in a match-winning performance. Melbourne for mine. Yep, Melbourne for both of us. All right, Saturday night at the MCG, Collingwood taking on GWS. And uh, I guess the I'll let you kick this one off. It's sort of setting up that repeat of the preliminary final scenario last year where Richmond played GWS, crowd of 94,000, 90,000 of whom at least were barracking for the Tigers. It's going to be, I don't think they'll get 90,000, but it's going to be a similar sort of ratio for the Giants. And the similar sort of problem for the Giants. Now, you are rightfully weary about, uh, wary about um, potting Hawthorne. And I'm very cautious and concerned about tipping the two winners from week one because history says no, except two years ago, that's exactly what happened Mm. on the way to Bulldogs winning the premiership. Both of the first week losers went out in straight sets. I'm tipping GWS and I'm tipping an upset and it is an upset. I'm tipping it for two reasons. One, because they must... This is a real test for Leon Cameron. They must have learnt something from last year's preliminary final. They were overawed and the crowd sensed it and the crowd became the 19th player. And and this crowd will likewise do the same. But if they steal themselves, are prepared for it, they can work it in their favour as well. Them against the world can work. Player for player, they do have more ability than Collingwood. And... 
they have more ability, but go into this game clear underdogs. And that's a problem for Collingwood because Collingwood have loved being the underdog all year. They have loved chasing the opposition down. They've loved the no-name status from Magden to Mahochek and everybody in between has enjoyed the rise through an anonymity into match winner. But they come into this game with great expectation. They come into this game with the favourites tag. That's different for this young band of almost you know it's almost like the seven samurai or or you know the you know dirty dozen they're a they're a, a ragtag band of of desperados collingwood but now they're favorites now they're the ones in the black hats so i'm tipping gws because player for player they are a better team i agree with, i agree with that and and i think um there there was a bit ominous how they finished that final against Sydney last week, I thought they started to get that outside run and excitement back. It wasn't necessarily reflected on the scoreboard. They were very inaccurate, but they started to get that run and, and they just, they look like they had a bit more zip about them than they've had most of the year. I felt that's been the quality they've lacked. I think, and at this stage, we still don't know whether Josh Kelly's fit enough or not. I think the odds are he won't be. I think that's a big loss because I think you need numbers um, in the midfield to counter Collingwood. They've got no shortage of talented players going through that middle. Uh, Scott Pendlebury, I reckon, is one guy who'll be looking for a better performance this week, and he's a very proud man, Pendles, and very rarely puts two poor ones together. So... I'd expect a big game out of him. I thought Steel Sidebottom was sensational last week. I thought the Pies were terrific, really. I thought they didn't wilt as much as West Coast came over the top of them last week. I think the crowd thing will be really important. The Giants have a really ordinary record on the G. They've won two games out of 12. But one of the two was against Collingwood in round two. I think a lot's changed since then. I mean, the Giants lost Scully that day. Uh, Collingwood, however, and this was important in the finish, were too short on the bench. They'd lost um, Tim Broomhead, broke his leg, and the other one they lost was Darcy Moore with a hamstring. So they were too too down on rotations for the last half of that game, and, and yet only lost by, I think, 16 points in the end. Um, I think they're good enough for Pies, and I'm loath to tip against both qualifying final losers, which I'd be doing after... Tipping against the Hawks. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think it, I think this will be tight. I agree with you that if the Giants play to their best, I think they probably would win. But I think Collingwood are very capable of preventing them doing that. One quick one on selection. I think the Giants need to consider a similar ploy to what Hawthorne did last week with the two Ruckman uh, for a couple of reasons. I think that having... Uh, Dawson Simpson in the ruck as well as Rory Lobb can wear down Brody Grundy, his very, very good ruckman. But also, I think it can exploit Collingwood's sort of undersized backline a bit more. And Lobb is a pretty handy forward. I mean, Lobb is a proven non-ruckman yep. around the ground. Yep. So I think that's something they'll consider as well. I think they'll give a really good account of themselves. Um, but I'm going for the Pies to win that one. On Footyology, never again. All right, Fanny, uh, as you know, I'm a bit flippant with this segment at times. Uh, this is serious stuff, though. I was back at the G in the press box last weekend, Thursday, Friday evening, and did the wash-up on SEN, watched the game from the written media section. Uh, that meant one thing, Fanny. Party pies. Far too many of them. 
far, far, far too many of them. I've got a well-established routine, which is with about 30 seconds to go before half-time, I uh, unobtrusively alight from my spot at the desk and get up to the oven and get a little bowl and load up. And I went for half a dozen, and after I'd had that half dozen, I still had a taste for them. So I went back and loaded up with another half dozen. Twelve party pies, Finey. What, every game? uh, Well, both on Thursday night and Friday night. And uh, it was noticed, it was noticed, and I certainly noticed the expanding girth on my gut all this week and the gurgle in my stomach. So my never again... Because I'll be back there, finally, in the press box on Friday and Saturday night. They are particularly good party pies. But my never again is never again will I go to um, a game at the G, sit in the media environment, not on a full stomach. Because I can't afford to be eating a dozen party pies per game. You know, if you if you keep down this road... I might have to get Mark Knight to draw a caricature of you. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I That'll did. That'll wake you up. Well, no, well, you know, people, uh, I get the fat thing a bit. Uh, it has zero effect, uh, would-be Twitter trolls. Try something else. Anyway, you're up. You know, I, I know this. I know a fact about Rowan Connolly. He's actually one of those people, lucky people. He can eat whatever he wants and not worry about putting on weight. You're kidding, eh? Well, you don't worry about putting on weight. Oh, no, I don't worry about <laughs> it. Very good. Very good. Okay, go on. Uh, never again ignore the bomb. Look, we've had now a couple of years in a row where... The bomb? The Bureau in, of Meteorology. Ah, very good. On Thursday night, Hawthorne seemed to fly in the face of what was very strong and clear um, weather reports that it was going to be wet. It was either going to rain heavily from five o'clock, so prior to the game, making the MCG glassy wet, or during the game. But they seem to think that if they pick two ruckmen and a tall team, that the rain will stay away. You know what? Weather forecasts are pretty accurate now. So never again, any football team, from Udna Data Thirds right through to the Tigers on grand final day, if they make it, ignore the bomb. Oh, no, good. good. And selection. Yeah, no, good advice. When he said bomb, I thought, God, I'm dropping the bomb. Where are we going with this one? The F-bomb. All right, that is it uh, for this week. Um, you haven't got any tasty little morsels to finish off for surprises or clips? You, or... Yeah, just one thing. What? How's the wash-up going? I, that used to be my show. Uh, I know. Um, it's going all right, actually. We've got heaps of calls Good. last Friday night. Um, do, you, so, do, you, do you sort of um, rile them up? I, I found I find people ringing up, leaving the game, still mm. have that competitive juices yeah, flowing in them. Yeah. And they want it. I, I didn't do it for any other reason than it just extends that period because by the next morning you sort of wake up and think, oh, I wasn't that bad a decision or, you know. Yeah. But while you're still combative, it's good fun to keep it going. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm probably a little more nuanced about. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I wasn't subtle. <laughs> no, no. I won't. It's, it's funny how I'd ever be considered mild and meek comp- compared to anyone. But uh, there you go. Because you know, no, it was good stuff, funny, and I, I wouldn't try to imitate it. We all have our own style. Um, all right, that's it for this week. Um, some interesting discussion. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope we have two fantastic finals. Um, let's be honest, it wasn't great last week. One game was great. Three were eh, pretty ordinary spectacles. So let's hope we get two classics this week. 
Don't forget to tune in on face, my Facebook page, uh, Rowan Connolly AFL on Facebook, for Footyology TV live on Sunday night at 7.30. From the same place we record this audio podcast, we will wrap up both those games. Uh, we'll rant, hot or not, you know the drill, and your questions too. So if you haven't seen it, tune in 7.30 Sunday night. And we'll leave you now with this little taste of what I was just talking about. What a lovely pie, me boys are four and twenty-five. A lovely tasty pastry in a four and twenty-five. Lots of lovely tender meat, the finest you can buy. How a lovely pie, me boys are four and twenty-five. Four and twenty-five and Corny's passing the rich golden pastry. Hoy! Don't forget them, four and twenty. Hoy! Hoy! How a lovely pie, me boys are four and twenty-five. Hoy!